0: Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute. Fetzer supports a movement of organizations that are applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Learn more at Fetzer.org.
1: This is the second in what will be an ongoing occasional On Being episode to delve into and accompany our lives with technology, training clear eyes on downsides and dangers while cultivating an attention to how we might elevate the new frontier of AI, how, in fact, it might invite us more deeply into our humanity. We started with Reid Hoffman, a philosophical mind in Silicon Valley, Today, I'm so happy to introduce you to LaTanya Sweeney of Harvard. She has been fiercely guarding your data privacy, whether you know her name or not. LaTanya is one of those people I love talking to, someone who's been present at the genesis of her field. Like neuroscience, computer science has only emerged in the last handful of decades And LaTanya Sweeney has been there, attending its birth pangs and adolescent crises. As much as any other single person, and with good humor and grace as well as brilliance, she has led on the frontier of our gradual understanding of how far from anonymous you and I are in almost any database we inhabit, and how far from neutral all the algorithms by which we increasingly navigate our lives. So LaTanya Sweeney brings a really helpful big-picture view, seeing how far we've come, and not, since the advent of the Internet, and setting that in the context of history, both industrial and digital. She insists that we don't have to accept the harms of digital technology in order to reap its benefits. And she sees very clearly the work that will take. From where she sits, the new generative AI is in equal measure an exciting and alarming evolution. And she shares with us the questions she is asking and how she and her students and the emerging field of public interest technology might help us all make sense. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Among her many credentials, LaTanya Sweeney is the Daniel Paul Professor of the Practice of Government and Technology at the Harvard Kennedy School. She's founder and director of Harvard's Public Interest Tech Lab and its Data Privacy Lab, and she's the former chief technology officer at the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. Hi, LaTanya. Hi, how are you? Oh, I'm so glad you're here. it's wonderful to be here and have the opportunity to talk with you. Oh, I've really been looking forward to it. Um, I mean, do you have any questions for me before we start? Anything at all? No, I'm just excited to uh,
0: have a conversation with you.
1: Okay. Well, Zach, okay, I got my thumbs up. Um, So one of the things that I'm—one of the things I'm always interested in is where the seeds of the passions and the questions that drive someone root— in a in a person's earliest life, and so I kind of want to circle around that as we begin. Um, I know you grew up in Nashville. Were you born in Nashville? I was born in Nashville, okay. uh, in 1959. So you have to okay. go back in time. <laughs> yeah, and and then so I've read. You know, I've been reading other interviews you've done and the uh, ubiquitous YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> of our time. And so I've heard you saying that, you know, even as a young girl you you loved mathematics. You knew at some point you wanted to be a computer scientist. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely
0: correct. And which was really odd cuz no one I knew in my neighborhood, wanted to do math. (laughs) You know, people, kids were dreaming of being policemen and firemen and so forth, but uh, I was the only one who just had this crazy passion for math. Hmm. Um, And I think that also predisposed me when I first did encounter in high school uh, a computer science uh, course or computer programming course, to be more exact. Yeah, Uh, And it was to really be transformative in my
1: life. Hmm. And, you know, I feel like... um a lot of what we're going to talk about um, is this this thread that runs through, this insistence that that you bring to your life and to your work about pursuing um, the practical and the moral good that is possible in our mm-hmm. lives with technology, um, even as you have wide open eyes and are applying a fierce intelligence to uh, attending to what, what <laughs> goes wrong and what can go wrong. And so I'm also just really curious about If you think about how this moral compass was planted in you, I mean, was there in that background of your childhood a kind of moral or spiritual or religious formation that however you would define that now?
0: Yeah, you know, I also think it was drawn—it may have been part of what drew me to math in the first place. I was yeah. raised by my great-grandparents. They were born in the 1899 and 1900. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and I was, of course, the only person I've ever known who was raised by their great-grandparents. Yeah. Everyone else in my neighborhood had a mother, a father, and siblings, and the, and here I was. Just so—it unu- was just such an unusual— arrangement at the time. And and it just seemed like everything in my life was messy like that. Mm. And I really liked the certainty of math. The idea, at least back then, in that level of mathematics, there was a right answer. <laughs> and And I think it really brought certainty to my life which seemed really kind of uncertain mm. and kind of nipples. I think that's part of what drew me to math and the other piece of course is that was a tremendous arc of history that my great grandparents were yeah. able to share with me and sometimes yeah. we would muse about you know their 1899 origin and maybe my 2050 ending and what what are the big lessons learned and what are the arcs where did the arc of history leave them i mean you have to realize they were They survived, they spent their young adulthood in the South during Jim Crow laws. Gosh. But yet, they were positive people. I mean, they uh, somehow, you know, their better angels just really showed all the time, Mm -hmm. and which I thought was pretty amazing, but they had learned lessons in life, and and I just think that added to this idea of a kind of black and white, do the right thing, guiding oneself and belief in oneself.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, that's extraordinary. Um, I mean, just to keep going here, you, in 2001, so actually more than 100 years after your great-grandparents were born, you became MIT's first African-American woman to earn a Ph.D. in computer science. Yeah.
0: It's a sad state of affairs for MIT. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. That That's absolutely not a good thing. <laughs> and I don't think the numbers have gotten a lot of improvement since either. Oh. And it, what's really interesting is that also has played a lot in shaping the work that I do, uh, yeah. being the only black or the only woman often in the room. And recognizing for the world that the technology has lots of values baked into its design. But those yeah. values pretty much come from 20-year-old white guys who don't have families, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they, and everyone else in society is struggling when their use case wasn't really a part of the base design. Yeah. Because
1: nobody else was in the room. Yeah. And I've been thinking—I was thinking as I was getting ready to talk to you about how—so, you know, I started this show— 20 years ago, but actually started piloting before that. So I like to say at the turn of the century, right? (laughs) Around the same time. (laughs) Around the same time that you were breaking that embarrassing milestone. And the conversation that I was having 20 years ago or you know across these decades and I mean it's so interesting to remember even like that's pre social media right so yeah. so the conversation was about the internet right yes that's right <laughs> and so the technological revolution was the internet and yeah. and I I've always been seeking out you know people who bring wisdom to this and and who are thoughtful and who, and who were thinking in in moral terms and about social implications and one of the ideas that came through that really has shaped the way I've approached both kind of my life with technology and this conversation is the idea that as all-encompassing and dramatic as these technologies have been and, and in how they've landed in our lives, and even for those of us who are kind of in the middle of our lives, right, and then suddenly we're on in like a new country, <laughs> um, that these technologies, the internet, as we would say 10 or 15 years ago, was – is and is still in its infancy, yeah. and that we remain, even though it doesn't feel like this, we remain <laughs> the grown-ups in the room, and that, that it has been ours to shape these technologies to human purpose. And I feel like this is precisely the lens that you took on. I mean, maybe for all the reasons that, that you and I just went over, that really feels to me like it runs through all these various things you've done, you know, what you teach, but also founding the Public Interest Tech Lab and and working for, what is it, U.S. Federal Trade Commission, um, a professor of the practice of government and technology and the work you're doing with technology in the civic space. So I don't know, how does that, does that sound to you like an accurate way to talk about your lens of approach on all of this?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty consistent. I mean, in many ways, just as my passion with math led me to computer science and my love of computer science led me to realize that the world was changing. I mean, it was really clear by the time I was a graduate student that there was a revolution coming and it was going to change everything. Yeah. But in my uh, naiveness at the time and in, in my excitement— as a graduate student, I said, yeah, but it's going to right all of the wrongs of society. It's going to make everything right. After all, technology is doesn't see race. It doesn't see gender. It's cheap. Mm-hmm. It can e- be easily reproduced. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was going to lead us all to a better democracy, a more perfect world. And so in many ways, I think now now that the decades have rolled by, my pursuit from the graduate student years on has really been the same. And that is how to make technology deliver on that promise,
1: hmm.
0: on that vision. You know, and just this math gave me certainty and comfort. I want society to have technology without all the harms. And that's absolutely possible because most of the harms come that we experience are arbitrary or added on, uh, and they don't have to be that way.
1: And, you know, I think that that, that idealism and optimism and those rose colored glasses that you talked about, I mean, I think that that was true of society as a whole, right? We went into this very optimistically. Um, Yeah,
0: but I think the difference was I felt like, wait a second, this guy's messing up. And meanwhile, like you're saying, mm-hmm. society says, this is the best thing since apple pie. Right. 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 Don't tell me about these problems, LaDanya. We want to just keep using this shiny new thing. And I'm like, yeah, but you can use the shiny new thing, but the shiny new thing needs to behave itself. It needs yes. to be doing this or that. <laughs> right. You're the grown up. <laughs> right. Exactly. And you know what's really funny? It, um, my first professorship was at Carnegie Mellon, and right. I would teach a class called data privacy. And students would take my class, and I would wonder why they even bothered to sign up because because they didn't believe in privacy, right? And, and in particular, what what that meant was it wasn't that they didn't believe in privacy; they didn't believe that the technology would violate their privacy. Yeah, and they were arguing, but if privacy on Facebook was a problem, we'd all be in it together. It would be a bigger deal, they'd say. Sure. But it was literally society just in love with it. Now let's fast forward to today. Today, I teach classes, the students call them the save the world classes. Yeah. Uh, now the students, before I can even bring up privacy as one of the kinds of clashes that we talk about with technology and society, the students will bring up privacy very quickly and, and they'll even use examples from Facebook and I'll look like, what just happened? Really? Really? <laughs> yeah. And, and and, they, and then they'll go on to talk about the stealth activities they have to go undertake in order to have privacy on Facebook. And so when I, when I then give to them what my earlier students gave to me as questions, and I asked them what happened, they said, oh, that's because that was my parents' generation. And then I look and I say, oh,
1: my God, that's true. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, you actually had a kind of big turning point of your own, a before and an after moment. In 1997, which I guess was your version of this pivot, um, which involved me. So where did I read it? You said you met an ethicist who told of a grim future where technology rules our lives.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I was a graduate student at the time at MIT. And... uh, and I was sort of walking through the lounge on my way to get some coffee, and I hear this ethicist say, "Computers are evil." Now you have to remember, as a graduate student, I'm thinking of, "Oh my God, this amazing world is about to unfold," and yeah. now I hear this person say, "Computers are evil." I'm like, "I got to stop and fix her thinking. <laughs> like, what is she? Like, doesn't she understand what technology is mm-hmm. about?" And so she and I get engaged in this conversation, and it's like ten thousand foot up. and eventually we start coming down to some concrete examples, and she. Names one in particular. She says, well, look at this. There's this health insurance that was given out to state employees, their families and retirees. All of their hospital records were included in this, and a copy has already been given to researchers and another copy sold to industry. Mm. And I said, yeah, but look, oh, my God, if that's done at scale, we could, we could save lives sooner. We could find better ways to cut costs. We could come up with hypotheses about r- related to illness and disease and treatment. And she says, yeah, that's all true. She says, if the data is anonymous, then that would be great. But if the data is not anonymous— then people could identify our judges and they could blackmail them. You mm-hmm. know, and she went on to talk about all the ways that the data could be used to sort of undercut our expectations in society. And, and she literally kind of foretold the future about not just that technology but other technologies sort of uh, breaking our social contracts. Hmm. So now in my eagerness, I'm like, well, let me explain. I'm sure that data is just fine, I tell her. (laughs) So I look at the data, and in the demographics, it has month, day, and year of birth, gender, and five-digit zip code. And so... So I do this quick calculation in my head. There are 365 days in a year. Let's say people live 100 years, and there were two genders in the database. If you multiply that out, that's 73,000 possible unique combinations. But I happen to know that the typical five-digit zip code in Massachusetts only had about 25,000 people. Hmm. And so that meant that that data would probably be unique for most everyone that was there in the data.
1: So so now my my, uh, my hopes are, <laughs> are fading. And is this – so this is a way – because I had kind of trouble comprehending. But so here's another way. I think you said it somewhere. 87 percent of the population of the United States can be uniquely identified by only their date of birth, gender, and five digits of code. Yeah, right? exactly. Which you know, is stunning to say it that way.
0: Yeah. And it was an uh, amazing situation in that particular data set I used as an example – uh, William Weld, when he was the governor of Massachusetts, mm-hmm. only six people had his date of birth, only three of them were men, and he was the only one in his five-digit zip code. So by linking the voter data on the health data on those same fields, you could put his name uniquely to his record. And then, like you said, using 1990 census data, we estimated that 87 percent of the population were kind of like Governor hmm. Weld. Mm. And what was pretty amazing, though, is that about a month later, I was testifying down in DC. Yeah. And about three months to six months later, laws around the world were changing, citing that example. It's often called the Weld experiment. right? Um, But it was about how society wasn't aware of the ways that these changes in technology would undercut our expectations for all kinds of values. And now, of course, even democracy itself.
1: Something actually just because it's fun to read. But, but as we keep going, it's it's also um, just kicks us a little deeper into this. So this is actually, this was in Scientific American. It was an article about you, and I guess it was when you were at Carnegie Mellon. Do you remember this? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> <laughs> There's a visual, you know. Radio is the most visual medium, so get ready. Um, Latanya Sweeney attracts a lot of attention. It could be because of her deep affection for esoteric and cunning mathematics, <laughs> or maybe it is the black leather outfit she wears while riding her <laughs> Honda VTX 1300 motorcycle around the sedate campus of Carnegie Mellon <laughs> University where she directs the Laboratory for International Data Privacy. Whatever the case, Sweeney suspects the attention helps to explain her fascination with protecting people's privacy. Because at the heart of her work lies a nagging question. Is it possible to maintain privacy, freedom, and safety in today's security-centric, data-based world where identities sit ripe for the plucking? (laughs) (laughs) Um.
0: Yes, I still ride the motorcycle, but I updated to an Indian Springfield. <laughs>
1: but okay, yes. glad to know that. You know, you often raise, you often bring his a historical perspective in when you're in conversations. Um, the context that this technological, this new technological state we're in, is a new industrial revolution. Um, these companies, these digital technologies are not like what we've had before. And I find that really helpful in so many ways. Is that something that you became aware of gradually, or how, how did that start to dawn on you? How has that helped you put all of this into perspective?
0: Well, what made me start to think about, surely societies experienced something like this before was when it first started, as you know, it was data privacy, with the starting with the Weld experiment. But then we we look up and then there are these discrimination and biases and algorithms. And yeah. I was first to do some work in that and sort of shed light on how algorithms that are supposed to be, statistical decision-making are actually, like, <laughs> like not no, not what we really should be using. And we have to really question uh, whether it's appropriate, giving us the appropriate answers. And I had so, so many graphic examples and others came and also showed even more. And so that's been a real problem. And so by the time we got to the third wave around some of the democracy and election work and how technology was undercutting our democracy and, and so forth, um, you start to realize that, oh, my God, the number of problems is just growing exponentially. Mm-hmm. And so the question was, where else has society experienced something like this? Mm-hmm. And so as I began to look historically, I started looking first at by technology by technology. And I'm like, no, but this is bigger than that. It's bigger than a television. It's bigger than, yeah. you know, it's not just communication. Uh, it's bigger than the printing press, right? Um, And so that's when I came to realize as I was reading about the history and the impact of the Second Industrial Revolution, the historians themselves had been calling the times we're going through the Third Industrial Revolution. And they put the start date back at 1950 with the invention of the semiconductor, And now as we and then if you think about it, you know, our iPhones and iPods and the Internet of Things, the Internet, all of these things are sort of revolutions within this revolution. Yeah. And now as we are looking at generative A.I., it's yet another revolution. And it's changed everything already, how we how we live, how we work, how we play, how we communicate with each other. And the end is nowhere in sight. We don't know when this is going to end, and yet the earliest of the clashes, like privacy, are still not resolved.
1: No, they're yeah. So I want to talk about generative AI. Be- before we do that, though, I just want to say something that I came to understand about this matter of what makes our our revolution different from previous ones. That um, and and perhaps you were drawing on historians, but I just I heard you explaining this in a way that was really helpful. That so when the car was invented for example so <laughs> like with the, with previous technologies there was um there was a runway there was time with the car or the camera or the telephone or even the printing press between the in the conception of something the design of something the distribution of something and it becoming part of people's lives and that in that time there was deliberation on what could go wrong, right? Like that, that there was that there was time and it was going, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and not it was time and also there it required a social contract. So mm-hmm. for example, you, you we had cars, but who owned the roads? I mean the roads were made they were primarily horses were using them. They were made out of dirt. There was nothing but hole, potholes. Yeah. And to try to run cars over it, that meant we needed cities and others to invest in actually building roads. Yeah. And that was a negotiation between society and the manufacturers that had to unfold. Right. And 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 what happened during that unfolding? Well, when you first would get in the car and you push the gas pedal, we don't know how fast it might go, right? Yeah. It might go slowly forward, or it might just bolt as fast as it could go. And brakes—if you hit the brake, it may not work quite as you might expect. Certainly not to the day standards. Well, these things caused harms to individuals and became major lawsuits and concerns and. Um, and so, as a result, if you know, if you want paved roads, you basically have to improve the safety of the automobile,
1: right? And so, all so, of this was working in concert. It was this that's right. complicated process, as you say, that brought everybody in before it was launched on the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Or certainly as and, and as it was unfolding. Mm-hmm. But here, where commercial adoption is the only thing that makes it that that's needed, right? And right. where the cost is usually a free technology or seemingly free – it's not really free, but seemingly not – doesn't cost me out of my pocket to use Google search, for example. Right. It makes you feel as there's no downside.
1: Right. And so one of the things that you've also been really leading on is this matter of, you know, okay, so – in this in this world we inhabit with these technologies, we have what is the right way to intervene? I mean, which really is a way to ask, to get really pragmatic and granular about that question of how to shape these technologies to human purpose. And you talk about looking for the sweet spot. Would you, would you explain that?
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, Normally, when some clash happens, it's usually, by the way, when the technology's gone through the life cycle all the way into the marketplace, and now the problem rears itself and society finds itself in a take-it-or-leave-it situation. If I I have to have more privacy, I have to give up some utility. If I need more utility, I can't have the privacy. And this kind of zero-sum argument is so far from the truth. The truth is, most of the time, it's a design issue. Either the commercialization of the product is causing the clash or an arbitrary design decision. And in those particular cases, there exist these sweet spots where we can actually have all of the benefits or the maximize the utility, and we can do it without the harms. Mm. Um, and so my, that's what we try to do in the work that I do is how do you
1: get society and the manufacturer to move to the sweet spot? And that means asking these questions and and having the solution in the design stage before um, it's out in the marketplace. Is that
0: right? Right. So we have solutions all the way through the life cycle. But during design, you can do risk assessments. You can do various kinds of impact assessments to know where are the problems and how do you go about fixing them. And usually that's the cheapest, easiest way because it's usually just incidental. Mm -hmm. But by the time a business package gets put on it, how it's going to be sustained, how it's going to make money, and then it goes into the marketplace where it gets adopted, now it's really hard. Those easier solutions, they're gone. That time is gone already. Yeah. And so now we're left into this take it or leave it, and the sweet spots are harder to get to because either we've got to have some patch or some technology add-on or we're going to have to live with the harms or something like that.
1: You know, it it feels to me like this orientation that that has developed in you to, as you say, starting with just all-out enthusiasm, this is going to make everything better, and then becoming really aware of unforeseen consequences and of the need, which actually, in my mind, you know, I I feel like it's it's a move that culturally, it's actually a, a move of of adulthood, right? Understanding that life is m- mostly about <laughs> is as much about <laughs> things that go wrong or not as we plan, um, as things that go right, and that actually that's how we learn and grow. And yet we don't necessarily make those assumptions and behave that way, especially when it comes to the market. Yeah. And so. So now I'm just really curious about how all of these things you've done and this way you approach technology in general and our lives with technology, like how has this prepared you and shaped you now to greet this new world of generative AI?
0: Well, I mean, I still have the same excitement with all the technology. I definitely feel still the energy energy that I felt uh, as a graduate student, of course, we're far more worried now because we haven't righted any of these clashes. We haven't resolved any of the big ones. Like, so for example, uh, social media, we don't have the slightest idea how to do content moderation at scale.
1: Yeah.
0: And we don't know, we haven't resolved how you build trust at scale. Journalism has gone through major transformations, disinformation, and so forth. What do you trust? And generative AI plays right into those fault lines right right into it they're going to be exasperated like times 10 or times 100 (laughs) and so so we don't really have time quite on our side either (laughs) uh it's a society we're not quite ready for but on the other hand, generative AI is very exciting. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't I think if anybody was to hear me talk and, and they walk away feeling gloom and doom, I don't have the gloom and doom. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it is not the great panacea either. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John
1: Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. On the Templeton Ideas Podcast, they dive deep into conversations with astrophysicists, psychologists, and philosophers, exploring the
0: most awe-inspiring ideas in our world. Learn more at templeton.org.
1: Well, let me just ask you, as somebody in this field, you know, you, you, did, you did use the word exciting a minute ago. I mean, what, what excites you and what, what surprises you about generative A.I.?
0: Well, in some ways, you know, like I said, going back to my own age of history, I remember when spell checkers came out, right? And people were like, oh, my God, children are going to never know how to spell again. We're all going to lose that. Mm -hmm. Or when word processing came along and people were like, well, what about handwriting? Nobody's going to teach it anymore. And in that way, something like a chat GPT. Is sort of in that same evolution. That is, I give it a prompt and it gives me a first draft, mm-hmm. and it can be a first draft of anything—a poem, a, mm. a chapter in a book, a, a, you know, a song. Uh, I don't know. I don't. It could never do a Krista interview, but, oh. <laughs> but the, the, you know. So I, um, I'm excited in the sense that it's pushing us into another tool. Like I'll just stick to Chat GPT now because yeah. I just think it's. Yeah. Generative AI is much broader than only ChatGPT, but ChatGPT has become the poster child of it. Yeah. And it's a great poster child because, it's you know, you can go to the website, you can try it yourself, and you can produce anything out of it, right? And it has all of the benefits and features and concerns that we see in general with generative AI. So so that's all. I think that those are all the good things. But then I could flip around and say yeah so we're just mo- moving the evolution from going from you know writing to typing on a computer to spell checking on a computer to grammar checking to first drafts right so one could argue that's the 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 arc and we shouldn't worry too much but what makes this one also different on the concern side though is we i mean there's lots of concerns one of which is we probably the internet in five years, maybe even as short as three years, won't be the internet that we know today. Right mm-hmm. now, most of the content on the internet, good or bad, wrong, right or wrong, full of disinformation or whatever, is pretty much human generated,
1: right?
0: But in three years, most of the content is going to be bot generated.
1: Yeah, I've heard you say and that. And it's
0: going to be <laughs> yeah. a, it's going to be a huge echo chamber, and so. And so if we don't know how to do content moderation on social media, how do you do content moderation when it seems like every original piece of writing is saying the same thing and it's all really from the same source?
1: So right. so one of the questions that that just prompts in me is we should be less trusting now than we are, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe we just become more reasonably untrusting of what's on the Internet.
0: But but so if it was 1995 and you mm-hmm. said I'm going to be distrustful of what's on the internet that's one thing because there're because your notion of truth and your notion of news and your notion of what's right and your notion of whether or not what people be- believe is coming from all of these other sources that kind of they had their own problems but for the most part, we could argue they were probably more reliable mm-hmm. than being in an echo chamber with ChatGPT, right? Right. Um, and so ne- but if the Internet of today it- or even the Internet of tomorrow, we increasingly don't know how to know what's right. So let me give you a couple of examples. Okay. Um, so if you ask ChatGPT just medical questions— which my students and I did this spring, one of the things that kind of popped out was if you ask medical questions around common diseases, sometimes you get the right answer and sometimes you get drink bleach. And then other, and if you ask it about more obscure medical problems, you get reliable content. Huh. And so, why is that happening? It's happening because ChatGPT learned all it knows, and it it actually doesn't know anything. It's just statistical correlations around words and 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 how you put these words together. Um, it learned it on the internet, right? And so, it has all the biases. Of the internet. So it's Mm -hmm. one of the most racist, sexist things you could imagine. It's so racist and sexist they actually write a program to interface between ChatGPT and the world.
1: Right. The, the companies write that in our Yeah. Huh. Yeah, so that so
0: that certain things won't come out like you know. Mm-hmm. Uh but there but it's not perfect because we don't know how to do moderation at <laughs> scale. As you <laughs> right. said a minute ago. Right. So we don't even know how to moderate Chat GPT. So when we want it to reveal itself to have these biases, you know, the students had so much fun finding great prompts that would make it reveal its it, these these types of biases.
1: Right. It seems to me, also though that, but by the same token, in terms of our agency, like that we have an agency to lower or raise the quality of what we get back from it. By the, it, it's I hate this word prompt, right? Like it's so simple, <laughs> right? Because I want to say the questions, the quality <laughs> of the questions we ask of it, um, yeah. which we're talking about in terms of prompt. I mean, you're using it. You're using it in in the classroom, right?
0: I use it in the classroom. I use it all the time Uh because I want to know what it's good for and what it's not good for and how to understand it. And what do you you – I'll give you an example. Yeah. A student of mine typed in – this is literally the only thing that the student typed in. Write a research paper by LaTanya Sweeney. Mm. And what came out was a beautifully formatted research paper. It, it it had an abstract, an introduction, a background, method sections, statistically relevant results, and beautiful bibliography, references at the end. Uh, the only thing is none of it's true. I never did that survey, I never did that study. Uh that's as far as I can tell, that study never happened. Mm-hmm. It was all about privacy too. It was all about data privacy. <laughs> and the and these and the results were significant and
1: none of the references were real. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. So what do you make so, of that? What do, so, you know, <laughs> the language, I'm, and I'm, now I'm speaking as a kind of, you know, consumer out here, non-specialist, not in the field, which most of us aren't, this language of uh, hallucination. That's Which right. is so? It's such a fanciful. It's so interesting that that's the word that's being used technically, even, right? Yeah. Because it's making things up.
0: Right. Um, if you turn that, if you turn that in, in fact, there was a lawyer that turned in a brief that ChatGPT made, and yeah. of course, none of the cases were real. Right. right? Well, and so we, the you, that, that lawyer has to personally suffer the consequences of that because ultimately he's responsible for what he submitted.
1: But, but, but I mean, ChatGBT's there's it's, not responsible. It's, it's a weird kind of creativity. Creativity that it has. I mean, I'm just asking you, as a computer scientist, how does that? What do you, What do you think of this weird creativity? Or is that even not the well, right it's, word? We've- been using completing readers
0: for a while so like if you go on your phone and you're typing in a text message or you're typing in a word processor and it wants to finish the sentence sentence for you yeah right so all it's learned are what do you normally type after this this is my best guess is what i think comes after this word you know or this is what i think comes that's all chat gpt is doing Mm mm-hmm this is my best guess is what I think you would go here. The best I guess on... is that
1: she would have done this study, <laughs>
0: right, exactly. and it would have had yeah. these results, <laughs> right? And, and that they would be statistically significant. Right. That's the funniest part. <laughs> right. Um, and it kind of and the references would kind of look like this. She'd have about thirty
1: of them. <laughs> right. I I don't know. I don't. I mean, it's. I don't even know. I don't even know what questions to ask about this. It just feels like such a new. It feels like such a new territory. In some yeah, ways, but- I know what you're saying. It's it's follows on territory we've been on. Um, yeah. So, you know, what I'm trying to think through now is what are the human condition implications of generative AI, and um, you know, something that that you also alluded to a minute ago, which I, I feel like we haven't kind of stated just clearly enough as what is the elemental thing that happened here is that this technology is a student of us, right? Us on the yeah. Internet, right? Yeah, it's that's us right. on yes. the Internet, <laughs> which is a huge qualification. Um, so if I just say that phrase to you, the human condition implications of of generative AI of, or chat DPT, tell me where that takes your mind.
0: Yeah, Well, it makes me a little afraid.
1: Hmm.
0: It makes me afraid because... Um, like I was saying in the 1990s, if ChatGPT came out then, you know, we had other trusted sources and people would have just been able to discount it. But we don't. But our other trusted sources are gone. This conversation has been very focused on ChatGPT. We're coming up in the 2024 election mm-hmm. and fake videos, fake images mm-hmm. that you can't distinguish. Is also another mind boggling issue right mm-hmm. it's it's just a matter of writing a prompt think about that that's so crazy and literally within 60 seconds there is this beautiful image or there is this video of that person doing that
1: okay but i'm talking to latanya sweeney <laughs> <laughs> who says we don't have to sacrifice privacy to have the benefits of our technology i mean you know i'm just i'm just curious about how are you Framing this for yourself and your students, if you continue on this path you've been on <laughs> doggedly these years. Um what do we what do we do about that? Or what is it giving us to learn? Which I think is another well, interesting question.
0: Well, I think the the first thing that's give, and I think that's the right way to think about it too, Krista, is you know, what are the big things to learn here? What are the big takeaways or what where the space of harms are going to look like, where the space of harms apt to be? Yeah. And the level of disinformation is going to go up dramatically mm-hmm. and all of our and our instincts about what is truth is is really is that's the big challenge generative ai gives us as a society
1: right but you know i feel like we've spent a lot of time arguing about whose facts are right mm-hmm. and in that there was a flawed assumption that facts were ever what alone conveyed truth or landed in human bodies as truth. So even, I, I realize I'm being a little bit of a devil's advocate here, but even if, let's say, one of the things it gives us to learn is to be talking about the nature of truth.
0: <laughs> that would be an accomplishment, <laughs> That right? would be
1: an accomplishment.
0: And and I think that's a, a really great accomplishment that is one of the most important things uh, for us to get our heads around now, that's the biggest challenge we're facing. What do I think of as truth? What am I using, so that we become skeptics? The, the biggest problem is we don't have a replacement yet for it. Right. We don't have a solution for it. But that's where I think the overarching challenge comes from. This, the second challenge is, you know, is a U.S. one. This the internet is mostly a U.S. Most of the data learned on is from from an American perspective Mm -hmm. which means our stuff is is the stuff our subjectivity (laughs) our bias
1: our pathologies right exactly
0: yeah yeah
1: An implication of this that that it weans many of us off the internet right i no. mean no i don't well or let's say it differently okay what's
0: maybe the internet is just become going to be a new kind maybe we're going to find a new thing mm-hmm. because you know our need for a north star around truth—it mm-hmm. is just fundamental Doesn't to a democracy. Yeah, right. Yeah. We can't really survive if all of us come to a table with completely different belief systems mm-hmm. and not even be able to find a common fact that we agree on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right? Um, you know, so we're going to have to navigate our society through to that, and that's going to take some unpacking to figure out what this means and how and 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 how we get there. Um, but I think that's the biggest challenge of generative AI mm-hmm. is how do we build trust at scale.
1: But if you think about those previous worlds we talked about, I mean, yes, they had time, you know, the printing press or the car or the telephone or whatever. It was a much longer span of time getting disseminated. But but it was transformative, right? It, there was incredible upheaval. And that is that is also true for our age, um,
0: and well, you know, you know what I would also liken it to electricity. Mm. So when electricity, like cars, had to be negotiated—that is, somebody had to run these power lines, somebody had to have generators—and that required some negotiation. But you know, people's houses burned down, and mm-hmm. people would plug things in, and you plug it in, and it would blow up in your hand. All all of this stuff. <laughs> okay, had to you're be... not making things better, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't. You know, yeah, <laughs> we. Mechanisms came to exist in society, like Underwriters Laboratory and things like that, yeah. to help us uh, navigate through that. Yeah. And, you know, I think your question, though, is will we have enough time as the speed of generative AI is moving yeah. that we'll be able to find those problems and find those kinds of solutions before we're so transformed we can't find our way back?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this. I do want to ask you again, what is the upside you see? What What does excite you? Because you also are closer than the rest of us in seeing that.
0: I think, on the other hand, the ability to express ourselves is is certainly enhanced. Hmm. I have a 15-year-old son. Yeah. He— has an idea for a card game. I don't know if you know about Magic the Gathering, but one of the things about Magic the Gathering is they have these, they're kind of a trading card, but you play them also. Mm. And, and they have a lot of strategy in how you play them. But on the card, they have these beautiful images that artists have generated. So he decided that he had an alternative game he wanted to design around a chess theme, and but he can't do that art and he doesn't know artists that would give him art that he could use like a blazing queen or a bishop threatening a knight and stuff like that so he finds generative AI he types in a few prompts and voila these amazing <laughs> images come out <laughs> right and then and then you know using standard word processing with different color fonts and so forth he writes or draws a really impressive looking cards and he does this 80 times. And he did that within a month. That's amazing, right. Right? right? All of a sudden, we have a way of expressing our creativity that we never had before. I had a colleague who literally wrote a book in seven days. Oh, my gosh. Now, I've been tortured and tortured myself and tortured my family for years trying to get this book
1: done. Yeah. <laughs> and he wrote a book
0: in seven days. That's crazy. With
1: ChatGPT as a companion, yeah, as a Chat helper. Yeah, with ChatGPT. That's right. I mean, what's clear is, especially, again, I really like this historical perspective. We are the generation in the middle of the mess, right? Like, we're, right. we're the generation right at the outset where yeah. we can see so clearly what is being undone. Yep. And we can see the dangers because this thing is accelerated in its development.
0: And we've seen a few cycles.
1: hmm mm-hmm. We've seen a few cycles. We're wary. In a way, we weren't wary yeah. with Facebook in the beginning.
0: But, but, you know, until we can really get our head around how do we deploy an army of public interest technologists, we're not going to be able to get completely in front of it.
1: No. You do say that there is a field emerging of public interest technologists. I mean, that's not a phrase most people have heard. You know, yeah, right. It doesn't
0: really flow off the tongue that easily. No, no,
1: (laughs) but it's it's comforting when it does.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's really most importantly though, it is really needed. Mm -hmm. It's really needed for someone who's going to represent society's interest and actually move us from what I would call a technocracy mm-hmm. to back to a democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, back to right now, all of our rules that we live by are literally written by how the technology works, right. what the technology can do, how, whatever arbitrary design <laughs> decisions it has. And if you're using decision-making algorithms, it doesn't even matter what our laws are if yeah. you can't enforce them in the te- if the technology goes contrary to them. Right. So we need someone who's going to say, wait, i got to represent societal interests, meaning what are our values and what are the things that we hold dear? In particular, what are our laws, right? right? And how do we make sure they get protected in today's society? And that's at the heart of public interest technology is helping society navigate its way back to itself today. Mm -hmm. But think of it this way. What if we succeed think of the world then we would have our democracy would be restored our our quality of lives would be restored and we would have all these benefits yeah
1: um you know i i i wanted to touch down on the fact that you also write poetry <laughs> Which, which might? Who tells you? Boy, know, you, you really well, do your on, homework. Come you know on, that? it's on the internet. All right. Yes, from 1990 talking something. Okay. <laughs> well, just as you said, everything has eternal life online. All right. Um, no, but but I th- it, it might sound like a non sequitur, but I actually think, you know, one of my questions again, if I think about the human condition angle on this, is. um what do we learn about what makes us human in having to grapple with these technologies right Um, and of course we know that um, that chat GPT can write poetry but I would also say that where poetry comes from in us and the full range of what it expresses about the human experience is you know very much also embodied and that Embodied human experience is is not present on the internet in its fullness, right? Absolutely. I don't know. It, is does that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, we we were talking about some a joint friend of ours earlier, and uh, whenever I I haven't gotten very many emails from her, but whenever I get them, they are stunning in her use of words. Mm-hmm. And ChatGPT will never be able to do that, right? There's something just amazing about uh, the human ability that is not completely captured. Mm-hmm. And so maybe what we're saying is ChatGPT and all the other things that we do in our lives where I just need to send a note. <laughs> I'm sure she oh. doesn't send email, every email like that. Right, right, right. But, but, and I'm sure there are some emails where she just needs to get something out right away. Yeah. Um, that's the maybe those are the things that we leave to chat gpt and these amazing pieces where we reach into our heart and into our souls and try to convert that feeling and emotion into words or into writing or into a drawing will still be there and we'll learn to to distinguish the two
1: yeah yeah, right. That's I guess that's the muscle we have to grow. I mean, there's a poem called Blood Passage, yes, from nineteen
0: ninety-six online. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna delete those. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but no, but you, you you say at the bottom that it was written for a family reunion. And yeah. anyway, there's reference in the middle of this. Um I am old and you are young. We span two hundred years. I know the past five scores, you hold five more still. Is that a reference to the, the two hundred year present idea of Elise Boulding, or is that were you just really counting?
0: No, it was it was really a reference back to my great
1: grandparents. Yeah, I was gonna say and that's what I said, your great grandparents. You truly yeah. spanned two hundred yeah. years.
0: No, really. You know, mm-hmm. when they would talk about their parents or their grandparents, I mean, you know, it's it's mind boggling to go back to, to think about somebody, you know, talking about their parents in the eighteen eighties. I mean yeah. it's
1: like and and I guess I just wonder: do we do we start to see this kind of experience and perspective we have in a new light because of what the technologies take away from us that they can do better? <laughs> I don't know. You
0: mean the, the is, are you? Let's flush it out more, Kristen. Yeah. Are you saying that the literal the the fact that everything is so literally preserved, or do, or do you mean?
1: No, I just mean more. Again, having this embodied experience of two hundred years, you can't. Oh. You can write about that, but you can't feel it. All right. I mean, we yeah. we yeah. have this yes. in our bodies, and you you put yeah. it. In, you put some words on a page that that express well, it.
0: Now, hallucinate as it might, <laughs> it's not likely to bring those connections together. Right. And I think that's what you're after. That mm-hmm. that it's going to The things that are said ninety percent of the time, it's going to say it. Right, it's going to hallucinate yeah, to connect one ninety percent to another ninety percent, right? Right, uh-huh. but it's it's the unusual pieces that hold the idea mm-hmm. that's not going to really happen. It might happen once in a while, but it's not going to happen regularly, right?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about the notion of intelligence, I mean, one thing I think I'm still remembering the days when when in when I was working in a in a big media organization and. And the internet came along, and there was the new media department, and then at some point <laughs> that became a completely ridiculous phrase because mm-hmm. the new media was media, and all the old media had to had to convert to it. <laughs> it was gone, you know. And so I'm so curious about this language of artificial intelligence is clunky, and I'm sure it's placeholder now. But intelligence, I mean, like I do, you know, mm-hmm. and you. You've always been—you've been working with intelligence and and with computing intelligence. I mean, how—you know, human intelligence is so much more than thinking, right? I mean, there is knowledge intelligence, but there's also the intelligence of love or care or parenting or, you know, you gave this beautiful talk. um, Thank you, Internet, again, for at the Arlington Church (laughs) in Boston, Arlington Street Church, right? Oh, my gosh! About your philosophy of (laughs) giving— (laughs) <laughs> right like that's yes. right it's th- but that's yeah. a kind of intelligence that is different from thinking intelligence or civic right yeah. you, you know you and I yeah. both love that language of c- the civic and civic intelligence is also yeah. different from private individual um yeah. And, well,
0: I don't think anyone is going—I mean, maybe there are a few people out there who, who might try to claim something like a chat. GBT has intelligence. But if we go back over the arc of time in, this, in the work of artificial intelligence, um, the artificial is more bigger than the word intelligence.
1: That's, that's <laughs> so interesting. That's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. What do you think now? I mean, how would you, answer, how would you just start to answer that question now? What is artificial intelligence?
0: You know, the the truth is, back in the day, what AI really was, was the pursuit of building a human. Yeah. It was literally, right. it was no different than mm. artists. You know, in Grecian art, where you're just trying to mm. represent an image of man or an image of your time, you know, w- humans have always been tried to find ways to express their intelligence and to make likenesses of themselves. And in that way, that's really... When I was a graduate student, AI was at the heart of AI, what drove us. But, uh, you know, but today... What is AI? Yeah, uh, is none of that, right? It's just like you said. It's just a statistical correlation of the internet, <laughs> right? Or a statistical correlation of images. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's got some fine tuning algorithms. I don't want to take away from uh, the great work of a lot of the computer scientists recently. I just don't. I don't want to take that away. Yeah. But I'm. But I'm in at a ten thousand foot picture. This is what it looks like.
1: But I. I still. I think it's really helpful to hear somebody who like just define that because I feel like that. That fact is not. It's hard to comp. It's hard for kind of ordinary people out here for us to just see. You know, some some of the things that are actually simple, not simple, but you know, straightforward about it. What it is. Mm. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, let me just. I think I want to ask. Just you know, following on that. Just as we wind down. So let me just ask the question this way. You know, with this life you've led, with this intelligence and knowledge base that is is yours, you know, your engagement with our technologies. um, You know, what do you keep learning? What are you learning now about what it means to be human?
0: Oh, my God. That would definitely be uh, – I take so much hope for tomorrow. You know, I, uh, I have the luxury of living and working with these twenty-year-olds, who are just amazing. They're just—they're mm. just amazing. And the society that we're passing over to them, I'm, I have to apologize to them on a regular basis. Mm. I'm sorry about this, <laughs> but it is what it is. Yeah. Um, and they're eager, um, and they're open. Their eyes are open wide to see the world as it is Mm. and what they're inheriting and what they need to take on. So I I do have a lot of hope in the future. I I think that's also particularly a
1: human trait. Yeah, that hope is what you possess and that that itself is an expression. (laughs) It's a manifestation of the thing I'm asking you to give some definition to. Yeah. Latanya Sweeney is the Daniel Paul Professor of the Practice of Government and Technology at the Harvard University Kennedy School and in the Harvard Faculty of Arts and Sciences. She is founder and director of the Public Interest Tech Lab at Harvard and also founder and director of the Data Privacy Lab there. And she is former Chief Technology Officer of the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen,
0: Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson,
1: Suzette Burley,
0: Zack Rose,
1: Colleen Scheck, Julie Seiple, Gretchen Honnold, Padraig O Gautham Gautam Srikishan, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Amy Chateline, Cameron Musar, Kayla Edwards, Tiffany Champion, Juliette Dallas Feeney, Anissa Hale, and Andrea Provost. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. We are located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. Our closing music was composed by Gautam Shriekeshen. And the last voice you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. Our funding partners include the Hearthland Foundation helping to build a more just, equitable, and connected America one creative act at a time. The Fetzer Institute, supporting a movement of organizations applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation dedicated to cultivating the connections between ecology culture and spirituality supporting initiatives and organizations that uphold sacred relationships with the living earth learn more at calliopeia.org the osprey foundation a catalyst for empowered healthy and fulfilled lives and the lily endowment an indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
0: On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.